Welcome to the UCLA Anderson podcast series. I'm Leo Feller. I'm a senior economist with the UCLA Anderson Forecast. And today our guest is Rebecca Diamond. Rebecca is a professor of economics at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to focus on your paper looking at food deserts and nutritional inequality. Um, can we start off with, you know, what is this concept of a food desert? So a food desert is a place or a neighborhood where um, there are very few or maybe even no full service grocery stores um, within some defined metric. So you might think within one mile or half a mile or five miles, you can have different measures of how intense the food desert is. And then what's been the you know, popular view of how food deserts might lead to nutritional inequality? So there's a theory that one reason low-income households consume less nutritious foods is due to lack of access. So if you look in low-income neighborhoods, on average, the types of food products on the shelf tend to be less healthy than the average food products on the shelf in a higher income neighborhood. And there tends to be fewer full service grocery stores in low income neighborhoods. So one theory about why low income people consume less nutritious food could be the stuff in the stores around them is less nutritious and their access is restricted. Now, in the data that you look at uh, and in the work that you do, do you actually observe food deserts? So again, it depends on your definition of food deserts, but it's absolutely true that if you just look in low-income neighborhoods, there are fewer full-service grocery stores, the density of them is lower, and the stuff on the shelves in the average store in those neighborhoods, including convenience stores, um, tends to be less healthy products. Um, if you define a food desert as like, there's no full-service food store within half a mile, there are lots of places, you define it, you know, with one mile, they're definitely a good chunk of places. If you go all the way out to like five or six miles, we didn't study rural areas, but within sort of the metropolitan areas of the U.S., they're not that many where you go out to five or six miles. And they exist, but they're few and far between. Well, what do you observe about low-income residents in some of these areas? Do you see that their consumption is limited to, you know, only their immediate surroundings, or do you actually see them traveling a little bit further to go to uh, full service grocery stores. So taking out the geography aspect, what do you actually observe about the behavior of the individuals in this geography? So we have some really nice data that tracks the food purchases of tens of thousands of households across the US. So we actually can see at the really granular level exactly what people bought and where they bought it. And a striking fact is that even in low-income neighborhoods or even low-income food desert neighborhoods, the vast majority of groceries are still purchased at full-service grocery stores. That being said, low-income households in a food deserts are going to have to travel further to them. So it may be unpleasant and costly to get there, but they do find a way to get there, suggesting that the food that they sort of see when they go shopping is more reflective of a typical full service food store um, than just the convenience store that might have been down the block from them. Got it. But in terms of costs, they might have to pay a greater time cost or transportation cost because they're traveling farther uh, to go to these full service supermarkets. 
Yes, and it, it depends. There are definitely neighborhoods that are low income that are not food deserts, and then there are neighborhoods that are low income and are food deserts. So it's not just if you're in a low income neighborhood, you're necessarily in a food desert, but they're they're more likely to occur there. So you and your co-authors actually examine data to analyze not only the prevalence of food deserts, right, but also whether the existence of these food deserts are a cause to nutritional inequality. Can you talk about some of the data that you're using and some of the techniques you use to actually tease out this causal effect of do food deserts cause nutritional inequality? Great. So this is a classic case of supply versus demand. Mm -hmm. So you see in low-income neighborhoods, there are fewer full-service grocery stores, and you see low-income households in those neighborhoods consuming less healthy food. So one theory could be the lack of supply of healthy food leads to less healthy food choices, or it could be the lack of demand or desire to purchase that healthy food leads those stores to stock them at a lower frequency. So just observing this correlation of low-income households consuming less healthy food and those neighborhoods stocking less healthy food doesn't tell you whether the lack of access is causing the purchases or the lack of desire to purchase is causing the supply differences in terms of what stores choose to stock. Um, so to disentangle that, we worked hard to put together a very detailed data set of full service grocery stores openings, like when a new store opened in a given area and we knew exactly the geography, the exact location of where that store opened and when it opened. And then in our consumer purchase data where we can see the really granular food purchases and shopping choices, we were able to track the same household over time before versus right after versus substantially after the food store opening. So if the lack of access to a full service grocery store was a key cause of less healthful food purchases, then you would expect to see food purchases getting healthier after the store opened. Now, it may not happen overnight, right? You might not notice the store right away. You might have to change your routine and start to shop there more often. So you don't necessarily think it could happen overnight. And potentially there could be very long run effects that we can't look at. Maybe if you have that store in your neighborhood for 20 years, it's different than having it in your neighborhood for five years. We can look up to about three to five years afterwards. Um, but you would expect to see that adjustment with that change in supply. And the key thing about using grocery store openings is that that's clearly a change in access and not a discrete sudden change in demand preferences. So that's what allows us to disentangle the, is it the demand for less healthy food driving this relationship or is it the lack of grocery store supply? When we look at household purchases, the first thing we see is that indeed households notice this store. So we can look at the share of your purchases that occur at the chain that's opening in your area and you see that tick up substantially. So people notice the store. It's not like it opens and these people just don't shop there. They definitely shop mm -hmm. there. Um, but the really telling fact is that 
the share of their groceries that come from full service grocery stores barely changes. It goes up a tiny bit. But basically what's happening is a convenience of transportation. So you used to drive a long way to the good grocery store. And now it's very convenient and you drive a short way or walk even or you know take your bike to the close by grocery store. So that's definitely, you know, welfare enhancing. These people prefer mm -hmm. to have a close by grocery store. Everyone likes to have a close by grocery store. But when we look at the types of food people choose to buy, maybe not so surprisingly, they buy very similar food to what they bought before at the further away full service grocery store. So that indicates that it's not so much a lack of supply of healthful foods that's determining these food choices. It's the preference and demand differences across high versus low income households that leads to different food purchases. So what is the time period that you're looking at when you're doing this analysis? So it's mostly in the like early to mid 2000s into the 2010s. I think our data is like 2007 to 2014 or so. I'd have to get the exact numbers. So I realize this part isn't in your paper. I just want to get your gut instinct. Do you think that access has become more liberalized in the fact that we now have Uber Eats and DoorDash and Instacart and uh, meal kits and different ways of accessing healthy food um, through you know web platforms, the internet in a way that didn't exist you know back in the early 2000s. And do you think that would have an effect on the access that people are uh, experiencing to healthier foods? So, I mean, I'm speculating, right? I haven't mm -hmm. studied any data on any of that. So for that to have a impact on narrowing nutritional inequality between the high and low income people, you would have to first argue that number one, that those platforms are especially providing healthy food as opposed to less healthy food. I don't think it's obvious that DoorDash and Instacart disproportionately provide access to healthy food. I think they just provide access to food. Um, right. and order a lot of pretty unhealthy stuff um, on those platforms. And then number two, again, I haven't seen data on this, but those are pretty expensive ways to access food in the broad scheme of food access that those are much more targeted at the higher income end of the market. My guess would be that if you looked in a low income neighborhood, the share of people ordering food on Uber Eats or DoorDash or even Instacart is pretty low. And if they are using it, it's an infrequent, like they have some strong demand for convenience in that very moment. Um, so I think it might shift what the high income people are eating. Maybe it shifts high income people to eat less healthy foods. So maybe it narrows inequality. Maybe in that. it's equalizing in that sense. <laughs> so I don't know, but I don't suspect it to have a huge impact on the lower end of the market. I think the lower end of the market is much more driven by like, you know, Walmart and where Walmart um, what they stock in terms of like in terms of access. It doesn't mean they're actually going to buy the stuff because the demand is the main focus uh, focus that we find is driving these differences. But I think Walmart is the main sort of retailer that you would think of targeting that end of the market. Right. And then interestingly, uh, you know, some dollar stores that have expanded into not just, you know, CPG goods, um, but also, you know, food items 
uh, at their stores. But then again, to your point, the variety that you get, perhaps the nutritional quality is, uh, is a bit less. So yeah, this brings low income, sorry, the big low income household difference in consumption at like dollar and discount stores. Yeah. So this leaves us on the demand side, right? So if it's not a supply side issue, what does it mean that it's a demand side issue? And how do we incentivize, or do we want to incentivize low income households to eat healthier foods? So I think that's a hard question. It's hard to think about policies that change preferences. So I guess there's two dimensions you can think about this. You can take the very economist view, which is we just take preferences as given. Like for whatever reason, you have what you like is what you like. And then we can control prices, potentially. So you could subsidize healthy food like crazy to the low end of the market, lower income end of the market, maybe through food stamps, and try to highly incentivize people to purchase healthier food. Um, we look at that a little bit in the paper and it's, you, you could do it. It's expensive because there's a pretty strong demand, intrinsic demand difference to, that you have to overcome you have to make mm -hmm. healthy food really cheap. Um, or you could try to think about what shapes preferences for food, which is a little bit beyond the scope of our study, but there is other work suggesting that, you know, where you grow up as a kid has a strong influence on which brands of food you prefer and likely the sort of cuisine and type of food you prefer, potentially just like how your household, what you grew up with in your house. Um, so thinking about childhood as a place where people develop their food preferences. I mean, that's a very long run view. Like you're not, that sort of says like the current adults, so you should just you know, forget about them and target the next generation. But it's not crazy to think that that could be a place to intervene as opposed to just subsidize the heck out of healthy food. Well, I mean, this also opens the potential for education through the school lunch programs, right, through, you know, if a lot of these lower income households aren't getting healthy foods at home, can you incentivize healthy eating by what's available in school cafeterias, right? And so normally this is an area where, you know, we, we don't tend to spend all that much money on school lunch programs, right? It's usually the lower costs, you know, whatever you can get. Um, you know, maybe you include an apple uh, as part of school lunches, uh, you know, but, but it also talks about if this is one of the only places that a lot of these households are actually getting, you know, high nutrition, then perhaps spending a little bit more on uh, the free school lunches versus trying to incentivize through uh, SNAP or food stamps, uh, particular purchases, that might actually be an easier way, uh, you know, to, to make sure that the upcoming generation is going to be healthier. Yeah, I think both like just making school lunches healthy, but also making school, making awareness around healthy food at, when you're a kid, that it's, you know, that these school lunches are healthy and what's healthy about them and why it's good for your body and for your long run health. Just teaching that in school as well can potentially influences, particularly if it's married with uh, does, you know, desirable to eat school lunch that's also healthy. So usually whenever researchers get to the end of a paper or the end of a topic, there's this wish list of things that they could have looked at, that they wanted to look at, that they wanted to explore, but maybe because of data limitations, time limitations, uh, they weren't able to, to do. What's, what's next on this research agenda for you? I mean, one thing that would have been really interesting to look at 
is this potential longer run effect, um, like cross-generational even. It was, mm -hmm. Our data was really not set up to look at look at that kind of analysis, but imagine you could look at kids exposed to a more healthy product environment growing up, and maybe that doesn't totally change their parents' consumption patterns overnight. Like we don't see it in the few years that we can study. But if you have like your whole childhood in a different food environment, how does that change what you eat as an adult? Um, that seems like a margin that we couldn't look at and potentially a margin where things like food deserts could matter. Um, but that was beyond the scope of our data's ability. Excellent. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us and for this conversation. Um, insightful to know that, you know, it's not a, if you build it, they will come uh, kind of argument. It's all a, you know, if you build it, uh, maybe they won't have to travel quite as far to consume, uh, you know, the food that they were consuming. Uh, but also it's really a matter of changing demand preferences, uh, which is a much harder task than, you know, changing supply constraints. Yeah. So, thank you. Thanks so thank much. you very much.